0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of JavaScript Jabber. Today on the show, we have Sam... some last name. How do you pronounce that?
1: (laughs) It's Sam Selikoff.
0: Yeah, what he said. And we're going to be discussing Ember. I'll be your host, AJ O'Neill, SolderJS, yo, yo, yo guy. Uh, And Sam is our guest today. Everybody else slept in. We changed the time for the show, for the recording time, for So Sam, why don't you go ahead and just give, you, give us an intro about you yourself, uh, kind of what your history is from the technical
1: perspective, and then we'll lead into Ember. Sure. Thanks for having me on, and it's pretty cool to be on actually, because uh, you know I learned programming about six years ago, and JavaScript driver was a huge part of me kind of getting up to speed with everything going on in the community. So um, it's pretty cool to be on here now and to meet to meet you. So, yeah, I, I got into kind of web development you know, later in life and really kind of gravitated towards JavaScript from the beginning because I was just kind of always interested in, yeah, making UIs, making cool stuff on the web. And um, JavaScript was kind of the beginning of that, that period where Backbone and Angular and Ember were coming out. So those were the communities I, I ended up in. And I lived in Boston at the time and um, went to the Ember meetup there uh, hosted by Dockyard, and, and that's kind of how I got into Ember. And um, yeah, I've been I've been primarily building single page apps with Ember uh, ever since. Okay, um, so about what year was that? What 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 vintage of Ember were you using? That would have been oh, like beta seven or something like that. So it was pre one point But by the time I really was, you know, kind of competent, I think it was right around the one point release. So it would have been like twenty thirteen or something like that. Okay, cool. So, did you ever play with Sprout Core before then? I didn't, but I've heard a lot about it because they, the the Ember community likes to um, talk about the history of the project, um, and so I know it it did come from Sprout Core, but I never used it myself. Okay, yeah, we've had uh, you know several people
0: on the show throughout the years talking about Ember, and it and it does seem like it's a very a very tight knit community. Like, there's a lot of community feels. Inside of Ember, it's a little bit smaller, a little more niche, perhaps. Um, Definitely, and it has the benefits and drawbacks that come with that. It sounds like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's something of an island, um, and I think the last year or so there's been some efforts made to to make that less true. So the the, the community is really tight knit and really shares a lot of beliefs and about their approach to software development and they don't want to give that up. But at the same time, they've seen kind of over the last few years, how rapidly the rest of the JavaScript ecosystem has evolved and they want to make sure that Ember feels it, like it's a part of that. People who use Ember can take advantage of those innovations and people who don't use Ember can also learn from Ember and the things that, that we do, um, in the same way that we're learning from them. And so, a lot of the work in Ember of the last few years has been trying to uh, what they call rationalize the primitives so that um, the rendering engine or um, you know, other points where you'd insert animations or how you would do state management or how you would persist um, server side data, all those pieces kind of, instead of just being in a single black box how can we make it so that we build on the patterns we've learned but um, make them kind of swappable so that if you wanted to use GraphQL or Redux, you could. If you wanted to try different state management libraries or rendering layers or um, build tools like Webpack, you could. So um, yeah, Ember's always been kind of a small niche community, but um, we still see lots of new people coming in. And um, I think that's only going to change for the better in the coming years. All
0: right. So what I, what I want to ask first, two things. One, well, I'll, I'll ask them separately. First of all, what are the values of Ember? Like, what is it that attracts the people that are most interested in it and find the most,
1: the most use out of it? It's a good question. Um, I think probably the two biggest ones are uh, convention over configuration. So um, the idea that you know, you might hear it called um, like zero config JS or something these days. And it's really the idea of convention over configuration, which kind of comes from the Rails era. And that is every Ember app should look conventional. Every Ember app should look more or less the same. You should be able to look at a project. And if you're an Ember developer, be able to jump into it, be able to find out what's rendering this part of the page or how this page is requesting data. It's all gonna feel familiar. And yeah, that's that's been kind of Born out um, time and time again, where people will say, you know, when a new Ember developer comes on a team, they can be productive from day one. And I've seen that myself, and I've talked to many people who feel that way. So that's always been um, one of the big values. The things that are that are different about our apps, but are only kind of trivially different—they're not different in a meaningful way. We should just agree about one way to do it, and then and then roll that up into the framework. So that's that's the first one, convention over configuration. And then the second one would be probably um, stability without stagnation. And that was something that was talked a lot about at the EmberConf keynote this year. And that's kind of um, sometimes a tricky needle to thread because uh, what stability without stagnation means is that we care very much about backwards compatibility and we don't want to leave anyone behind. And you'll see that um, a testament of that is, is every year at, the, at EmberConf, they have a survey where they ask kind of what version of Ember folks are on. And it's it's pretty crazy. It's something like 70 or 80 percent of people are in like one of the recent two or three versions. And versions come out every six weeks. So minor versions do. Um, or releases happen every six weeks, rather, I should say. And um, so, so the stability part is really an, an important aspect of that. But then stability without stagnation is trying to get at the fact that, you know, we could be backwards compatible and not change anything forever. We don't want that either. And so we want to innovate and improve and roll up learnings from the larger JavaScript community into Ember in a way that's not going to leave anyone behind. And, um, you know, they learned that lesson from, like, the 1 to 2x era. There, was, there were some learnings that happened there. There were a few pain points that made that a little more difficult than it needed to be. And then all the work that's gone on in 2x and 3x Ember versions, um, for example, like replacing the rendering engine with Glimmer, happened in a Forge-compatible way. So that's definitely one of the other main values.
0: I think last time we had uh, someone talking about Ember, we did cover Glimmer a bit. That that rings a bell. So another question I have is kind of the inverse question. Because jack-of-all-trades master so there 's lots of frameworks that serve everyone, but yeah, I mean like i won 't name names, but there's some frameworks that are like uber popular, but it starts to be like well it's you all you have is a hammer, and so everything 's a nail mm-hmm. uh, and people do really weird stuff that's just like eh, you know, if you just did what you needed to do you 'd have a simpler solution whatever so the the inverse question is what are the things that are not Ember's values? Like that I could listen to this podcast and be like, okay, I align with this. I don't align with that. Ember's not for me. Cause I think that helps provide some context to where people can, can like, when you know what it's not, that actually helps you sometimes know better what it is. So what is Ember not? Who, who should stay away from Ember?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Another way to say that is like, what should you use Ember for and what shouldn't you? But as far as the values go, um, you know, because stability without stagnation is a value, that means the the month that a new thing kind of comes out, you're not going to be able to use that number right away. So Ember is going to make that trade off and say, you know, we would rather wait and see ideas become battle tested and proven. And once they are, once we feel confident that they're going to serve the majority of Ember's users in a valuable way and be worth adoption, we're going to figure out a, a way to adopt them uh, to roll them into the framework. But that means, you know, there might be something like React's unidirectional data flow, which um, was like a game changer. It's like a really important part of like modern UI development. And that did make it into Ember. It just wasn't there, you know, the month or two that it released or that first year. It was like a year later when Ember's component model was updated once that idea was proven out. And then, you know, there's other other patterns that kind of come and go. And so... That's that's that balance that they try to strike. So if you're someone who really loves experimenting with the the latest and greatest and you want to start a new project and use everything that has just come out, you know, that was on Hacker News last week, Ember is definitely not for you. Ember tries to strike the balance in favor of people who are going to be investing in an app for many years and they don't want to come back to something and feel like it uses old patterns and they have to rewrite their app. Um, and so, again, that's kind of that's kind of the balance that they strike.
0: So, I'm a big fan of the Go community, and that sounds a lot like kind of the mentality in in the Go community is that you, even if it's obnoxious and you have to wait, what seems like a ridiculous long time, you make sure you get it right before you include it in the standard library. So, I, right. I personally value that. That sounds
1: really awesome. The other the other big part of it, I think, that would like disqualify someone from wanting to use Ember is if they really wanted to understand every piece and be able to put together their own kind of Lego set with every little block and understand the moving parts of everything underneath. One of Ember's goals is is really to be about empowering kind of the average development team to do more than um, they could without it, and so what that means is is trying to get good abstractions basically, and um, necessarily not understanding how everything works so that you can do more. You know, in the same way that most web developers don't understand, um, you know, HTTP at, at a protocol level or TCP, but but yet we're still able to make um, web applications on top of that. So Ember really believes in the power of abstractions. And if you're the kind of person who wants to be able to understand every line of code in your app, then Ember's not going to be for you. Okay. so. There's been a lot of talk about
0: performance benefits of this versus that. I think a lot of it is noise, but I, I do recognize that for certain types of applications that are very specific, like for example, if you're building a spreadsheet that's going to have 10,000 or a hundred thousand rows, it's viewable in the browser. You have to make certain decisions or you know, the, the, or if there's certain design patterns you want to have with the way that modals work, maybe being able to have multiple modals or movable molders or modals or, or things like that that are, spec- are application-specific, you know, there's certain components or frameworks that that are generally better for that than others um, or lend themselves easier. Like, you can create just as performant of a spreadsheet in the original Angular as you can in, in React, but React probably would have made that Easier because some of the patterns in Angular were the way the documentation was. People could be led to accidentally do the wrong thing easily. So, do you see in Ember something where there's a certain class of applic applications technically where Ember kind of tend towards being really good at this style of development or this this type of app?
1: Yeah. So, the, with Glimmer, which was kind of the main research project, I guess, a couple of years ago, and, and ended up did ended up roll, getting rolled back into the main Ember library. Performance was kind of a primary consideration. And um, there were some demos at conferences that were showing kind of Ember's re- rendering performance versus reacts and angulars. And, and Ember had, you know, some baggage from kind of its early days. And so Glimmer's rendering engine really improved that. And so I think, you know, I think any of the modern frameworks are going to be comparable in that um, regard. Now, the, the recent component model that's coming to Ember Octane, which is something you know we might get into, which is kind of like a new edition of Ember, which is really just a line in the sand around features that have stabilized in Ember, does a lot more with um, kind of uh, compiler time analysis and, and, and build time work to, to optimize your templates. And so, um, yeah, all that to say that uh, you know, LinkedIn.com is powered by Ember. There's financial software that's powered by Ember, um, that renders, you know, that does, processes tons of uh, transactions and, and renders large tables of, of data in a real-time way. And so I think, I think any of the modern frameworks can build, be used to build applications like that. What I would say um, more importantly about what's a good use case for Ember and what's not is um, the fact that Ember really goes kind of whole hog on the single-page application approach. So Ember has always been about building SPAs. Um, a JavaScript application that runs entirely in the client that talks to a back-end just consuming uh, data over an JSON API. That's always kind of been the architecture of an Ember app, whereas a tool like React can be used um, to add, um, you know, JavaScript components to a traditionally server-side rendered application. So that's the bigger, that's the bigger um, factor that's going to affect whether or not a team would be successful with Ember. But as far as render performance goes, I think you're going to be good either way. Now, the, the new Glimmer stuff with this thing called track properties is actually has been shown to, to be a really good scalable way uh, to write JavaScript apps. I know I'm not a React developer, but one of the pain points that was these track properties were intended to solve was optimizing React components with should component update. In Ember, we don't have anything like that because of the static nature of our templates. So that makes them a little less flexible and less powerful sometimes, but it um, does make them fast.
0: Awesome. So let's talk about the new stuff, because I think that's, that's maybe the meat of what we really wanted to be on here for. So tell, tell us about how is Octane different and how does it take advantage of the new ES6 features or its own, does it have its own syntax, kind of like React has its own version of JavaScript, Angular has its own version of JavaScript?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so this new edition of Ember is called Octane, and the reason for the edition is basically uh, comes down to the fact that Ember cuts releases according to Semver and not according to um, like big features that are released. So that means a big feature could get released, and it could be released in um, a minor version update. So maybe Ember goes from 3.2 to 3.3, and now it has element modifiers. And that's like a big feature that's going to change the way Ember developers will write their apps. But there was no real splash, or it was not clear that this was a big new thing, um, whereas some frameworks used major version releases for that kind of thing. You know, they could say Ember 4 is out and now we have modifiers, now we have Glimmer components and all this stuff. So what is the major version? So the current major version is 3. I, th- okay. I believe the current release is 3.9. And the idea is starting with like uh, Ember 2.8, there's been lots of um, larger changes that have come to the programming model, again, in a forwards compatible way, but things that have addressed some of the shortcomings of the, of the, of the current Programming model, and then there comes a point in time after, let's say, you know, eight or ten minor releases, and we stop and look at the, the the API for Ember, and we say, look, this has actually changed a lot. Like if you read the guides that were written, you know, two years ago, and you look at the features available now, we actually have almost a new programming model here. And again, it's four is compatible, so we're not going to break Semver and call this a major version release. We're actually just going to call this a new addition and say. This is a mark in the sand when these new features have all been released and there's a cohesion around the new features. So now you can use Glimmer components instead of Ember components. You can use modifiers instead of actions or or something you would use to do uh, before to solve the same problem. And that's kind of the idea with Octane. So Octane represents kind of a a new way to think about writing Ember apps using the APIs that are currently available. So you've got a list of things with the Glimmer components
0: that you put in, in our show notes. So angle brackets, ES6 classes, outer
1: HTML, track properties. You want to just go through those? Sure. So yeah, so Octane is not actually released yet. It's in a beta period. And the final set of kind of features uh, that are going to be shipped with Ember Octane you know, is still yet to be determined. But um, there are some things that are already stable in Ember. And again, because, because we release on like a six-week release cycle, those things just get shipped when they're ready. So what's actually going to be on Octane is is yet to be determined, but there's some things we know are in there. For example, Glimmer components. So Ember has Ember components, and you can still use those, and those are always going to work going forward. Glimmer components are from the kind of Glimmer.js experiment, um, and those were rolled back into the framework. And they do a couple cool things. Um, First, you get to use angle brackets to invoke them in that you know, it seems like a small thing, but... What is angle brackets? Angle brackets are basically how you would invoke a React component, where you use, you know, a, a less than and greater than sign, just like you would an HTML tag. Whereas in Ember, we use double curlies to invoke a component. Oh, okay. So, like... Just a syntax
0: I mean, thing. Like, I think of that as mustache style versus HTML style.
1: Right, HTML okay. style.
0: So, it's, it's really just the syntax sugar is changing...
1: It is, but the reason that was a big deal is because for a long time, Ember held out on going HTML style um, because they didn't want to co-opt the namespace that could be reserved for future HTML tags or web components. And the ultimate resolution there was to use kind of capital case, uh, Pascal case, I guess it's called, um, to avoid that because HTML elements and web components like custom elements can only use lowercase. So basically, it's... Yes, it is a syntax thing. So
0: HTML is case sensitive on tag names now?
1: What? I don't think you can register a custom element that uses a capitalized letter. Or at least the HTML spec will never add, like, would never add, like, a tabs HTML element that's capital T.
0: Okay, so are you saying that this is at a layer where it's not out to the browser yet? So you could have overlapping tags potentially, but that's okay because by the time it gets to the browser, it's gonna be lowercase and program would know if it's lowercase, it needs to go directly to the browser and not be interpreted as a component. Exactly. Okay, cool, I understand now. Yeah,
1: understand now. Ember templates are a superset of HTML because they they're use they use handlebars. So it's important to be able to disambiguate what is a like a component invocation and what is like an element or a custom element, et cetera. Yeah okay so next question then on that same vein I I personally
0: I hate build stuff like especially when it changes the language I probably shouldn't prefix the prefix the question with that <laughs> <laughs> like does this require a special Js compiler other than I know that like everything has you know build step of some sort but does this require a special Js like like the Babel version of ember or or is this just like... Still strings.
1: Oh. oh, this is the the most compiler of compilers, actually. <laughs> oh, really? No. So, so um, you know, when you see like this kind of capital title that I've written here,
0: for those of you that aren't watching along, it's a capital T.
1: Yeah, it looks like you know, it looks like a um, an HTML element, but it has a capital T instead of a lowercase t because you know HTML could add a lowercase t at some point.
0: But well, what, what I mean is just like if I were to open this up in a JavaScript editor, yeah, if I was just to open this up in VS Code without installing like an Ember plugin. Would it go crazy complaining about syntax errors? Or, or no? It, oh, okay, cool. So it's like it is JavaScript. It is actually
1: legitimately JavaScript. Well, it's um, it's it's Handlebars. Well, h- yes, but yeah, when you invoke the components, you're actually in a template. You're not in JavaScript.
0: Oh, so. okay, okay, okay,
1: okay. Because Ember still has templates things. and component files.
0: So you're not like mixing things in line where it's like part of your JS file is JavaScript, part of your JS file is a template. It's like templates are their own thing. JavaScript is something. Okay. Exactly. It's too bad we don't have someone else on the show with like their opinions, but that's that's my preferred style. So <laughs> if I can influence the listeners to follow the one true and
1: correct way, <laughs> Ember's is an option. Um, <laughs> yeah, we could talk. It would be fun to have someone to talk about that with. So yeah, you're in a template, you're in um, literally a .hbs file, and so uh, super superset of HTML, and you're rendering a component that has a capital T, and so it's basically, your editors basically treat that as, um, as an element, as an HTML element. When, now the comment I made about it being compiler heavy is that originally that template would either get shipped to the browser or get pre-compiled on the back end but when you ran it on the client, you know, the client would kind of see, come across that uh, angle bracket, like angle bracket, capital title, and then basically invoke a JavaScript function. Whereas, in um, conceptually that's still what's going on now, but Glimmer is, has a, like a VM. There's like a, a virtual machine and your templates get compiled to bytecode and shipped to the browser. Um, that is interesting. So there's some cool things about that. that um, the, your templates are in um, like a binary format that don't require any parse time at all because the browser just can read binary data without literally without running or parsing it. And um, it helps the static parts of your templates be really, really fast. So if you imagine you had a big like, page and a lot of it is just static HTML and CSS or whatever, all that stuff is going to be very fast because Ember doesn't have to do any sort of tracking there because it knows those parts of the templates will never change. Whereas when it encounters like a curly, you know, label equals curly curly foo or something, it can just look at the curly curly part and say this is a dynamic spot. So this gets back to like solving the the should component update problem. Like we don't have that because, because our templates are deliberately kind of underpowered. They're not a full-featured JavaScript programming language or or any programming language. They have static parts and dynamic parts that helps Glimmer optimize static parts and keep things fast.
2: This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io.
0: To me, ideologically, I agree with that. I think that's that's cool. So one thing that you said that kind of set off some alarm bells in my head, and, and I want to preface this with size is not a great indicator of performance because some people take these things way out of context and they're like, Oh, it's, it's so many kilobytes. Therefore it's terrible. But you know, you compare the two side by side and it turns out, and I think when we had the discussion about glimmer, I think that that was brought up, but you know, you can get, faster rendering, better performance, a better user experience. Sometimes it's something that's a little bit larger in size, but it's just more efficient. But when I hear VM, I think huge. I think like megabytes of JavaScript. And I'm sure that's not the case. That's not the way, the way that I'm thinking of VM. is probably not the way that you mean it. So what, what is the weight of this VM and of Ember as a whole? Like w- how big is my hello world?
1: Those, those are two questions, but you can answer both of them. That's a good question, I probably should have pulled this up ahead of time. I I, um, I don't know off the top of my head. It's it's Ember has gotten smaller, especially because since we dropped jQuery as a dependency, which was there as a dependency because Ember was made in 2012 when when that kind of thing was you know really important. Of course, Ember um, a brand new Ember app built will be bigger than say a brand new React app built because Ember includes a router, state management persistence layer, you know, all, all those things. And so we could look up the size of a brand new Ember app, but the VM I don't think is not, doesn't add a lot of weight to the Ember app. And in fact, Ember has gotten smaller over time, even with the introduction of Glimmer's rendering engine. So uh, we can pull those those statistics up for sure. But, you know, again, like um, it's always important to consider the comparison of two apps as opposed to just the the hello world, because the idea with Ember and the idea with conventions over configurations and batteries included is that you're going to need a router, you're going to need a state management library, and so the real comparison, apples to apples comparison, is is like a, a production Ember app that uses those pieces and a production other app that uses, let's say, you know, React plus React Router plus um, Redux and, and and apollo whatever your 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 technology stack is there so i think with this kind of stuff it's important to, to pay attention to to the apples to apples comparison
0: oh i absolutely um, agree and i don't want to i don't want to get people thinking in the wrong direction i just kind of wanted a relative ballpark estimate of like for example there were there were some configurations of uh, angular in the early days where it was literally over a megabyte to get the batteries included you know, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the common core, like slightly optional, but pretty normal components. Like it was, it's a full megabyte of JavaScript and, you know, versus React, which is like a couple of kilobytes of JavaScript. And of course, I'm comparing old Angular versus I, I don't know what new Angular is, but, you know, the, so I was just kind of trying to get a ballpark
1: comparison. I'm pretty sure it's like 100, 150 KB, you know, something like that.
0: Yeah, and that's that sounds perfectly reasonable for the type of apps that you're describing, where it's you know beyond the hello world to do MVC and more towards you know I'm building something that's got lots of different pieces to it, like like a Facebook type thing or a LinkedIn type thing or a, right. a you know business centered apps. I, right. I would think that's pretty acceptable for right. And even and, and even on the slim side.
1: Right, and and there's also a lot of. Um, work happening this year, like once the octane component model stuff is done, like a lot of the a lot of the theme of Octane is is kind of like runtime APIs. So how are you gonna author components and handle events and do state management on the client? And then kind of one of the big themes for the next edition of, of Ember is going to be the build time stuff. So it's gonna be how to get a more pay as you go. Uh, approach where even though we have batteries included, if you're not using a part of the framework, it'll just be compiled away for you, kind of the ways like Svelte, Svelte approaches things. And so I think that's going to be a theme in the, in the next year or two.
0: So I, I have this habit of always prefixing my questions with something pointed, but here I go again. So I, I, one of my concerns has been in the like in the NPM community, uh, i mean you you install something simple like for example request request is great right i mean everyone uses request except that it I, I it's above 50 different dependencies it's somewhere between like 50 and 150 I don't remember what it is but I just remember doing an npm install request that was it and the number was astounding right and some of these build tooling systems are introducing security vulnerabilities in people's computers because you've got you know hundreds or thousands of dependencies when you're doing your you know, hello world, and one stray person gets access to an NPM module, puts some malware in it, and kaboom. Now I'm wondering what is the NPM build system like? Are you more self-contained? Are you using like bajillions of modules? Like, do I need to be scared? You're saying on Ember side? Yeah, I'm asking for Ember. Like how do you guys how do you guys manage that build tool story? Like how deep is your black hole of NPM?
1: I mean, I think it's probably going to be comparable to a a Vue CLI app or a a Create React app or Next app or um, an Angular CLI app. I mean, Ember's built on the the build, Ember CLI, the build, the build tools is built off of um, NPM. You know, it uses NPM modules, so it uses the resolution algorithm. So you end up with this massive graph of files on disk and you have to filter them out and decide what gets shipped in the client bundle. I mean, in my opinion, the whole NPM dependency. Uh, management story is, is a mess, especially for front-end developers. Which you know, I've been again, I've been doing primarily SPA development for for about six years now, and um, you know, npm's nested node modules was a design intended to avoid dependency hell on the server. But when it comes to bundling those dependencies for the client, you now have to deal with things like duplicates. Um, because they get flattened into a single bundle. So I think this is kind of um, this is this is like a, a, a it's a bad state for for all the SPA build tools. Uh, Ember is no different.
0: Well, I'm, I'm actually m- my concern is more about the security of my computer, of like having so many hundreds of dependencies from so many hundreds of authors, which may or may not have two factor authorization turned on in their in, you, know, you know, like that's. That's that's kind of where I'm wondering if there's like any security consciousness above and beyond the default, to to like you know reduce that surface area where somebody completely outside the Ember community updates a left pad module to uh, include a picture of Guy Fieri, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and a small malware hack that steals Bitcoin. <laughs> you
1: yeah, know? yeah. I mean, I personally don't. I, I I'm not familiar with with the. the the nuts and bolts there, I think, you know, obviously there's trust in, in any of the tools that we use, but um, I mean, I've seen things happen where there's security issues in, in um, some NPM package. And, you know, there's, it's handled the way you would want and expect in Ember. Um, there's, there's notices about it. There's updates, there's security uh, updates. And it's just like, you know, something like that happened with rails. It would be the same idea. So. Um, okay. Yeah. All right.
0: <laughs> so, I got us off a little bit track. Let me reel reel us back in. So uh, ES6 classes, outer HTML, track property. Is there anything too special about ES classes that we need to know when it comes to Ember or is it just the normal way?
1: Yeah, so one of the interesting things that if you were to start a new Ember app today, that would be maybe confusing is the fact that Ember has its own object model. And so there's this whole Ember object based Model system, which is like lets you extend objects and create them and um, call super, and again these were all things that just didn't exist easily in, in a way that that was felt serve the ergonomics of an application developer in 2012 and 2013, and so you know since then. ES6 class spec has been formalized, modules have been formalized. You know, Yehuda and other, other folks who work on Ember were um, kind of instrumental in, in those things because they wanted the standard to evolve to a, a way that would support the ergonomics we wanted within Ember. And so um, most of that work has been done. It's just a matter of now doing the work and making sure Ember apps can upgrade. Old Ember apps can upgrade and new Ember apps can use um, classes based on ES6 modules. Now, the last thing that was kind of um, blocking that was decorators. And so decorators are important to the programming model of Ember. So you have things like computed properties. If you want full name to be a property or a computed property, we always wanted you to only access them in one way. So in a template, you could do, you know, um, person dot name. And whether full name was a property, like a static property, or a computed value that was derived from other properties it should always be accessed the same way. And so, you know, um, before ES6 classes and getters, we used decorators in order to accomplish that. So we have something called computer properties in Ember. And um, we, use, we use decorators for other things as well. So one of the last things that was holding out the, the transfer to be able to go all in on ES6 classes was some sort of native decorator support. So you could you could mark something as a computer property or you could mark it as an action or, or something like that. And um, recently there was, a, there was a TC39 meeting and decorators are still going through some, there's still some details to hash out, but they did agree on some minimum set that's going to be added to the JavaScript language. And so now uh, we're at a point in Ember where we can basically go to that model and use native ES6 classes, native getters, and native decorators for things like the tracked um, decorator that's important to the Glimmer component model. So I know that our... Listeners won't be able to see this, but would you mind typing out for me real quick what,
0: what you mean by ES6 decorator, just so I can see it and then maybe ask a
1: better question or not? Yep, so you'd have like an export default class or something like that. And then um, first you have a field here, which is like name is equal to AJ. So that's like a hey, that's ES6 nice. field. That's an important thing that was added as well. And then let's say we had something that was like your... Um, score and it's like a game and this thing is going to change over time and you start at score like that and that's just a property on this class okay, um, so export default class bracket name it
0: equals aj score equals one bracket that's my my delio okay and
1: then what we're going to do is basically just add a tract right here and this is going to be a normal import so it's going to be something like tract from i don't know glimmer slash tract something like this. Or Ember tracked, something like this.
0: And it's it's going to basically decorate that score with a function that is computing it rather than, so whenever it gets set, though it's, it's like a getter setter, but uh, a, a generic getter setter where I don't have to have the syntax right in the file where I'm applying it.
1: Exactly, and it actually does more than that. Tract creates like a reference, which is what the templates use to know intelligently whether or not to, to re-render. So this is like telling anyone who cares that this thing might change over time.
0: Having an at sign is part of the decorator, but the track name is
1: arbitrary. It's something that you're importing. Exactly. and, and, in- and Exactly. Yep, that's exactly right. And, and decorators are really just functions that get run um, that have access to the class context and property name that they're decorating. And they can also decorate... Um, Functions as well. So you could imagine something like. So adding something else. Update name button. is a function. And, you know, let's say this thing said something like this, right? And uh, Update name receives name and sets this dot
0: name equals name that it received. As an so argument. That's normal
1: standard setter, yeah. Right, but. A lot of times, you would have to use to bind to, to, to bind something in the constructor if you've seen that pattern before. Because yeah, of, yeah, yeah. So instead of having to do that, you could just use something like a bind decorator and just do something like that. So okay. just okay. adding a bind decorator, you're going to basically do this dot update name equals this dot update name dot bind this in the constructor. Something like that is the okay. kind of thing you could use decorators for.
0: Okay, I'm gonna to try to translate visually what I'm seeing. So just like we had at track score equals one, it's gonna decorate score with some functions. We have at bind, then update name, this includes name, and that bind is gonna affect it so that this is the correct this, and that bind is arbitrary, something that's being pulled from an import. Exactly. And then so so let's see, what are we at for time here? So we got like maybe 15, 20 more minutes. Okay, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this, and I'm, I'm a little bit split because I know the listeners can't see, but I'm hoping we're doing a good, good enough job of describing this yeah. in context. What, so could you just real quick show me what a the function decorator
1: looks like, the function itself? That, oh, how like, would you author a decorator?
0: Yeah, is that
1: something that you could do in two lines, or is that something that's bigger? Yeah, I don't actually, I haven't written a decorator myself yet
0: okay all right well and this is stuff that's on the standard track it's maybe not something our listeners can use right away anyway
1: so yes. but, but uh, anyway it's yeah uh, it's really really cool stuff it's basically a way to package up a function and apply it to either a method on a class or a field on a class and kind of augment it or, or do something with it
0: um, so just a little bit more metaprogramming stuff okay well I uh, love a I'd love a link to, to some some material on that in the show notes if you uh, happen I'm to be able, able to to find it up, either send it to us right at the end of the show or, or afterwards. Okay, so outer HTML, I'm familiar with, with HTML, And that seems like one of those no brainer things. So for, for those of you that aren't aware of the problem, there's always been inner HTML. So you've got a div and you do inner HTML to be able to say insert something into it. Typically you're setting something with inner HTML. Sometimes you want to get a copy of what it is you're working on. But if you use inner HTML, you only get a copy of the thing that is inside. And so in order to get the thing that was outside, you'd have to take your, your, whatever object you have, you'd have to traverse up to its parents. And then you'd have to traverse back down to find the item that actually matched your item and call in the the inner HTML on, well, no, you couldn't even do it that way. You, uh, it was weird. It was, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. So, is that the outer HTML referring to, or did I just take us off
1: track? So, it is, yeah, it is the same. Um, the idea here is that Ember components, and especially this applies if maybe you used Ember a couple of years ago and ran into these strange APIs. And, and what I'm talking about is for an Ember component, let's say you have like an image component. You want to make like a fancy image component. Every time you render that thing, Ember always managed the root element of that component. So Just by rendering like fancy image, there's going to be a div there with like an Ember ID on it. And it's part of how Ember did like it's change tracking. The problem with that is that in order to like customize the class names or attributes on that root element, you'd have to use this kind of weird API class name bindings and attribute bindings and all this sort of thing. But we're web developers. We already know how to set classes on, on elements. If we're rendering them, we just use the class attribute or, or other a- attributes. So, uh, it, with Glimmer components, what you see in the template is what you get in the actual browser. So, it's a really cool thing, especially, again, if you've used Ember before. But even just, you know, you define your new fancy image and then you put some DOM in your template.hbs file. And what you see is going to be exactly what ends up in the dev tools in the browser. There's no root div managed by Ember. There's no Ember IDs anywhere. All the change tracking is taken care of by Glimmer, knowing the tags that are dynamic and um, using track properties. So it's, it ends up being, it's like one of those things that's kind of small. But when you open your, your application, the dev tools, and you look at the component tree, it's like, it's really, really nice.
0: Well, in, I mean, aside from just looking at the component tree, I have... Those of us that are the ancients, know, we know how important this is. Just because the little gotchas where you thought you had your elements, but you actually had its child, or you're like Mm overriding the wrong thing, like all the little basically off-by-one errors that happened because either you weren't accounting for it, or you were accounting for it, but there was a nuanced subtlety that just
1: uh, yeah, I no. It's it's so true, and especially when you know these days when you make a component for everything. If you're trying to make some sort of table abstraction, and you're doing each oh, those are the worst. As, yeah, yeah, item as items as item, and you run a render like your table row component, and then table data. You just want to see what's in the template. Like you just want to see the component, and no nothing wrapping, nothing magical happening because it could affect like your flexbox layout or whatever. So it's a really yeah. nice thing. It's yeah, a really graceful transition from folks who just are familiar and comfortable with, with HTML and CSS to start adding some dynamism with these components. So, yeah, basically all these all these aspects of the component model ha- have come together to give a really nice story. It's, it's very fun to use. feels very modern. I think it would be familiar for someone who, who's never used Ember, and especially if you use Ember also, um, it'd be worth giving a shot um, for just to see what the component model is like compared to the original one. All right, cool, cool.
0: And So uh, one more thing we've got on the list here is talking about elef- element
1: modifiers. I have no idea what you mean by that. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Um, it's actually interesting because these came at a time, you know, basically stabilized and landed in Ember, at almost the same time that React hooks did. And React hooks are a new way to solve uh, composability um, issues with React applications. So. You know, for a long time, React had components and the ability to, to nest components. And when you use that for everything, what you find is that you can end up with um, some abstractions that use nesting to share behavior or data, but where nesting is not really the natural, most natural way to do to do that. And um, with hooks, you have basically a mix-in pattern. You have the ability to use mix-ins, something like a mix-in, without using a nesting relationship. It's more of a compositional relationship than an inheritance relationship. And so um, you can stay at the same level and pull in you know, three hooks to your same component. And this is kind of the way modifiers work as well. So it's kind of interesting how both communities actually landed on something very similar. Now, modifiers have actually been in there for a long time, but now we have the ability for app developers to write their own modifiers. So um, let's think of an example. Well. We, we've had an example for a long time with the default kind of action modifier, which looks like this. So, you know, increment counter, something like this. So this is a button HTML element with a, you know, open tag, button, close tag. And then right within the tag, before you write the closing bracket, you do curly, curly action. And that's a modifier. So Okay. This is basically, you know, you can also think of it as a function invocation, something that's running. But it has access to And this this is very
0: similar to the way that, that Angular and Vue have done it, right? Like it's a yes. little bit different syntax, but that's the same basic concept there.
1: Exactly. Okay.
0: And I am running up on time, so uh sorry
1: we're we're gonna have to finish up this discussion pretty quickly and move on to picks. Okay, no problem. So yeah, this this is just a function that runs and it has access to the button. Now you can write your own. So you could do something like a div and then um, you know, track me. And this is a function that will track, let's say when the user scrolls this div into view or interacts with it, it'll send you know, maybe an event to your metrics service or Google Analytics or something like that.
0: Well, that one doesn't, that, so that one you're just defining a custom action
1: it's a custom modifier. Cust- sorry, custom, custom modifier. And it can so- do the same kinds of things that a React hook could do, like setting up an event listener and tearing it down when this thing gets okay. unrendered. So it's a way to share logic and state in a more composable way, because now I can use track me and action on the same element without having to nest things.
0: Oh, okay, okay. So you can have more that you, instead of having to have a div and then another div to be able to accomplish the effect...
1: Exactly. You can add an animation, like fade yeah. in. Awesome. Something. Yeah. All yeah. that good kind of stuff. I love it when I don't have
0: to nest indefinitely to get features. Exactly. Awesome. Great.
2: This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, And their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have twenty-four-seven friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at lino.com/slash javascript jabber.
0: Well, Sam, thanks for coming on the show. This has been really enlightening. I, I think there's a lot of people that are gonna get go a value of this. And you're actually quite excellent, in my opinion. Could totally be wrong. You know, maybe we'll get <laughs> trolled in the comments about it, but quite quite good at um, explaining things in a way that to me at least, which Maybe I have too much experience, but it sounds pretty pretty simple and approachable. So I hope that, that other people find this equally um, valuable. Um, one thing that we do before we end the show is we have picks. And it could be anything. It could be technology. It could be uh, a philosophy. It could be a book. Um, so I'll, I'll start us off. I'll pick a couple things. You pick one or two things. And then uh, so we'll have to reconvene at another time when there's um, – Octane Two, or that was <laughs> <of> good. <laughs> All right. So earlier you said let's talk about that in a tone that reminded me of these YouTubers I like to watch, Rhett and Link. They have a show called Good Mythical Morning, and their tagline at the start of it, uh, they'll always like bring up something from the news or something weird, something that doesn't make sense, and then they'll be like, "Let's talk about that."
1: I love Rhett and Link. Yeah, I love them.
0: They're awesome. And yeah, so I'm, I'm going to pick Good Mythical Morning. I haven't watched it in a while, but it's a, a really great channel. And then I think that because I'm short on time, I'll just leave it at that for today and let you go ahead and get to yours.
1: Sounds good. I'll do, I'll do a tech pick and a non-tech pick. My non-tech is uh, Man in the High Castle, which is a series I've been watching uh, with my girlfriend. And we're on season three now, and it's just such a cool show. It's from Amazon Prime. And it's like a historical, what if the Nazis had won World War II, kind of sci-fi fantasy. I think it's based off of a Philip K. Dick novel. And um, yeah, it's just awesome. I love it. And then TechPick is Tailwind CSS. They're about to launch a 1.0. This is like a CSS utility-first library that kind of goes all in on that approach. We've been using it for a while now. And um, yeah, it's just totally changed the way that we style our applications. And I absolutely love it. So they're going to release a 1.0 soon, and they're doing some more work on like a component gallery thing. So there's like lots of interesting stuff happening over there. So if you haven't heard of Tailwind, I would definitely recommend checking it out.
0: All right, awesome! Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your your thorough explanations and and your expert knowledge on on these topics. Uh, and uh, I, I hope that we'll have the opportunity to have you on the show again when there's when there's some other new stuff. So keep us in the loop. All
1: right. Absolutely. It was great to meet you, AJ. And thanks for uh, all your work on the podcast over the years.
0: Yeah, it's mostly that all goes to Chuck, but I'll take it in his place since, <laughs> since I happen to be here right now. <laughs> all right. Well, adios. Bye.
2: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit dot com to learn more.